The reason we have slowed down and are spending a great deal of time on Rahab is because the New Testament makes much of her. We think of her role in the genealogy list in Matthew chapter 1 where she is listed as his ancestor. Or in James chapter 2 where we are told of her as a prime example of a living, working faith. Or in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith where she is listed very clearly as a believer. I want to remind you how we got to this place with Rahab and Joshua 2. We began way back at the beginning of Exodus with Israel in bondage, in multi-generational slavery. And the Lord begins to work to bring them out of that bondage. He raises up a redeemer, Moses. He sends plagues upon their enemies. And finally, after great trial and great trouble, the Lord effects a deliverance. And that happens on the night of Passover, which we will certainly reference tonight. Passover and the Red Sea are the pictures of God's redemption for his people in the Old Testament. And then to that redeemed, saved, delivered people, God gives Israel the law at Mount Sinai so they may know how to please him. The ten words. Israel comes up to the the border at Kadesh Barnea and the southern border. And they are prepared to go into the land, that land that had been promised them for generations. And they apostatize. They fail. They turn back and they wander for 38 years. And indeed, all of the people under the age or over the age of 40 or the age of 20 die in the wilderness. So Moses dies and the handoff is made to Joshua. And in chapter 1 of Joshua, as we open that, in chapter 1, we see the preparation for invasion. As Israel is now massed, not on the southern tip of the promised land, but on the eastern tip. Across the Jordan River, somewhere between 2 and 5 million strong. And Joshua now is the commander of the armies of the Lord. He sends two Israelite spies across the Jordan River. They enter Jericho and they find their way to Rahab's home and business, which is a brothel. Of course, all of the king of Jericho's spies are out. They see the the Israelites massed just across the river. Here they are, multi-million people, and they're preparing for an attack. And the king of Jericho is watching the river, the border, very closely. And as soon as these two spies are sent across the river, they can't hide. The king of Jericho sends police to take them into custody for questioning. And so these officials come and knock on Rahab's door. And when they do, asking about the location of the two spies, she doesn't tell them the truth. But afterwards, she enters into a covenant. And what I want you to notice is where this covenant is made. I hope you're looking at Joshua chapter 2. And what we see is this covenant takes place in a couple of locations. Rahab comes up to these men. We find her in verse 8. Before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. Now, I was thinking about conversations of any matter and weight that I've ever had while sitting on top of a roof. I don't think I've really had much of a a weighty conversation, but what we see is the first half of a covenant. Look, for example, at verses 9 through 14, where, where Rahab introduces, she asks for a covenant with them. And then we find in verse 15, she lets them down by a rope through the window, and then she hasn't had enough. These men are wanting to hurry and get out of town, but notice what she does in verse 16. 
<clears throat> she picks up and there's more of the elements of the covenant stated there. And so when you think about agreements, weighty covenants that have ever been struck, this has to be the oddest place. First on, on the roof and then down through the rope into Rahab's brothel is where the second part of the covenant is made. And so we're going to need help tonight. This is weighty. We speak often about the fact that we hold to covenant theology. We have, a, a, once again, a whole chapter in our Confession of Faith on, entitled God's Covenant with Man. And we talk an awful lot about God's covenant with man, our covenants with one another. And you're going to get deep insight into that tonight, but you're going to have to labor. And you're going to have to understand how this covenant then gets writ large in the new covenant. Let's seek the help of the Lord at this time. O oh God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds now. Give us concentration that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Look very carefully with me at your copy of God's word in Joshua 2. And I want you to begin by noticing Rahab's plea. In her rationale in verses 12 through 13, she says to these men while up on the roof, she says, Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. Spare my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Now notice what the essence of Rahab's petition is. Look carefully at verse 12. The essence of her petition is, show kindness to my father's house. This petition is clarified in verse 13, where she specifically names all of them. She lists all the parties of the covenant when she makes the request. Rahab is moved by natural affection and spiritual concern. The same conviction that moved her to protect herself from the coming wrath of God moves her to seek her family's safety. And so what she shows us here is how covenantal people think. They don't think as individuals. This is something that I say often. I'm still trying to convince some, perhaps many of you, that to think biblically is not to think individualistically. It is to think by households. Think of in the, the new covenant. How the apostle, for those of you who look at this and think, well, Carl, that covenant theology stuff, I get it. Uh, Israel, they thought by households, but now we're in the new covenant. It's all individualism. No. Think of Paul in the Philippian jail at midnight when the earthquake comes and the Philippian jailer runs down to him. And he says, he asks the question in a singular fashion, what must I, singular, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answers him with a covenantal household answer. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Here's Paul in the new covenant saying, no, not going to let you get away with thinking individualistically. I'm convinced if the apostles came here, the first or perhaps the second thing they would rebuke us about is how hyper-individualistic we are. We still don't know how to think by households. And so as Rahab asks, notice here's a, a pagan woman, a woman who runs a brothel for a living, the newest of new converts, and even she knows how to think by households. Look what she does in verses 12 and 13. 
she immediately says the same conviction that moved her to flee to Jehovah moved her to do anything lawful for her family's safety. Look at the rationale. She wants the spies to deal kindly with her family. What reason does she offer? Why should they heed her petition? Very simple. Look at verse 12 carefully. And I want you to walk with me verse by verse and see the weightiness, the, the interaction that goes into making a covenant. She asked them to do this, to show kindness, because she says this, since I have shown you kindness, that's a good reason. She'd hazarded her life and her household for the sake of these two men. Now, the least these men could do is to take steps to see that her household is spared. This is the very principle Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 when he teaches, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus teaches that the subjects of the kingdom are merciful people because of the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in them, and they will obtain mercy. And so here's how Rahab is thinking. She showed mercy to God's people and desired mercy in return. She's pleading properly. Now look at the assurance that she desires. What she's wanting is something very common in that generation. What she's wanting, what she desires is that her plea and her petition will be honored. Notice what she wants in verse 12. Look very carefully at her wording. She wants a sworn oath. She wants a covenant promise. That's why she says, swear to me by the Lord. This demonstrates the strength of her faith in Jehovah. She so believes in the living and true God that she wants the spies to invoke his name to back up any promises to her. She wants nothing less than a covenant in the name of God. Notice she wants Jehovah. Look carefully at verse 12. She wants Jehovah and not the false deities of Canaan, whether it be Isis or Baal. She doesn't say, swear to me by Baal. No, she wants Jehovah to be called to witness. That's what happens in a covenant, and she already knows that. But she doesn't just want an oath. Now she's getting technical, and we're seeing that she's much more mature than we think. She's much more mature than many American evangelicals. She understands the elements of a covenant. Look as well at verse 12. She doesn't just want a sworn oath, a covenant promise. She wants a sign of their covenant. She says, give me a true token. She's asking for something that she can produce as a witness of this agreement. A sign that represents the benefits of the covenant. Did you hear that? What she wants is something profound, something very new covenant-ish. She wants a covenant sign. Rahab wants something like, dare I say it, a sacrament. She wants a covenant sign. You have covenant signs, baptism and the Lord's Supper. A sacrament is itself a sign. It's not the thing signified. A sign says Greenville on it. It's not the city of Greenville. A picture of something is a sign. It's not the reality. A sacrament makes something known and is a signpost. It points to something much weightier. In the case of the Lord's Supper, the bread is a sign of Jesus' body being broken. And the cup that we drink is a, a sign of Jesus' blood being spilt. 
Think of what our shorter catechism says. Many of you parents won't know this, but your children will in question 92. When the question is asked, and the reason why they know that is they're in catechids, which I still would argue may be the best thing we do at Woodruff Road on Wednesday nights. The question is asked in shorter catechism 92, what is a sacrament? The answer comes back, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ wherein by sensible signs, signs that make sense, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented. So in baptism, What's represented? I'm belaboring this because what Rahab is asking is she's asking for something like a sacrament. In baptism, what is represented? As the water is poured on the head of the recipient, that water is a billboard pointing to the benefits that we reap, the cleansing by Christ's work. When you see the baptism of of an infant or an adult, here's what should be going through your mind. Not just, that's a really cute baby. But what you should be realizing is that is a sign that points to something weighty. That the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. That Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, immediately after stating that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says, such were you, but you were washed. So in communion, what is represented, what is signified or signed? As the bread is broken and the cup is drained... It's a huge technicolor blinking sign pointing to the benefits we reap because Jesus was wounded. His body was broken. His blood was spilled. He was wounded for our transgression. Because Jesus was mocked and beaten and tortured, we're united to Christ, adopted and blessed. Because Jesus' blood was spilled, there is remission of sins. Because Jesus' body was broken and his blood poured out, we who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. As well, a sacrament does something else, and we see it in Rahab. Just like the sacraments draw the antithesis between the world and the believer. The world has no use for the sacrament. They don't want to come to the Lord's table and and hear the fencing and the, the words of warning. They have no time for that. For signs, the sacraments draw the sharp distinction between the world and the church. Our confession rightly says that the sacraments put a visible difference between those that belong to the church and the rest of the world. Our confession is stating the sacraments are antithetical. They draw the sharp distinction. Just so Rahab's sacramental sign, the red cord in the window, draws a distinction between her and every other household in Jericho. So what sign can be given to Rahab? Look what she's asking for in verse 12. She's asking for a true token. What sign can be given her that when God's wrath falls, all the Israelite soldiers who flood in like a tide will see this sign and forbear from harming her and her family? So I want you to think about these two spies. Here they are. Perhaps they were tiny children when this happened in their house. They couldn't have been over 20. Or perhaps they had been born since Israel stood at Kadesh Barnea and failed. Whatever it was, when Rahab asked for a true token, what immediately comes to their mind? What would they have lived through or at least been told about or experienced? What sign on the house would protect them? 
Keep one finger here and look back at Exodus 12. The, the sign that they give is a logical sign. In Exodus 12, and you're going to see, oh, this, this makes sense. This sign wasn't just plucked out of nowhere. In Exodus 12, we read about what occurred for Passover night. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Oh, isn't this interesting? This sign is going to be for a household, not an individual. Israel is being taught to think by households. And we read, if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood. Anybody remember what color blood is? It's red. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. Then look down at verse 13. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. It shall be a sign. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So now Rahab has just asked them, these two men, give me a true token. I want a sign, a sign that will protect me when the wrath of God comes down upon all my neighbors. And so they immediately think, well, it'd be a little awkward to find a spotless lamb. The only sign we really know of that will cover a household and will will point to safety is a a red blood. So uh, how about a red cord, Rahab? That will do. How will the wrath bearers who will come in know to spare Rahab? By the same essential sign that the death angel in Exodus 12 knew to pass over. A scarlet sign. In Exodus 12, it was the blood of the lamb. And when it comes to Rahab's house, it will be a blood-like cord hanging down. Now, I want you to think about some parallels between you and Rahab tonight. Because still, there are going to be people who think, Carl, this is 3,400 years ago. What does Rahab have to do with me? Well, I could convince you simply by saying... On at least two occasions, in James 2 and Hebrews 11, the New Testament sets Rahab before us as an example of a saving, working faith. So knowing that, it's striking for you and I to observe the parallels between Rahab's faith and ours. Think about the many parallels, and you're going to think, wow, Rahab's just like me. Oh, Carl, you keep going. Well, it's like we're the same person. Rahab, first of all, was a Gentile and received grace. One of the handful alive on the planet then. Well, so are you. Most of you are Gentiles by birth who have received grace. But there's so many more parallels. Rahab believed in the true God, though she had seen no signs and wonders in the wilderness. She'd not seen the plagues. Those happened down in Egypt. She'd not seen the Red Sea divide or the pillar of cloud. She believed 
without sight. You too have believed without sight. You and I didn't live in the apostolic era when Jesus and his apostles had their teaching validated by many wonders and signs. You and I have been called to believe apart from signs and wonders, just like Rahab. Another parallel. Rahab had only received a valid report about the mighty works of Jehovah, and she believed that report. She'd heard it, obviously, in the most awkward of places by the men who passed through her her business. But she had heard, and faith had come by hearing. She had heard a valid report, and she believed that report. We, too, have a valid report in the Holy Scriptures, which we must believe if we are to be saved. There's another parallel between you and Rahab. A long time, a long time had elapsed since God had effected a mighty redemption and deliverance. It had been 40 years since the Lord had done that. Probably happened before Rahab was born, when God had redeemed his people and delivered them. Even though it had been a long time, she still believed. She believed in a historical event that was far past, just like you and I. It's been 1,990 years now since God effected our redemption at the cross, and we must believe in that historic event. But look as well at the parallels. What does Rahab want? She wants something to give her assurance. She wants a sworn promise of deliverance. She wants a covenant. That is what every person who flees in faith to Jesus Christ wants and has. God has established the new covenant in Christ's blood. And he's proven and sworn that every promise made to believers will be fulfilled. A final parallel. Rahab wants a sworn pledge. In the name of the Lord that she would be be spared from the coming wrath. And that's what we have, what we want and we have in the Lord's Supper. We want a sworn pledge and a visible sign. We want a true sign of God's promise to us that we'll be delivered from the coming wrath. By the breaking of Christ's body and the pouring out of his blood at the Lord's table, we're assured that all of our sins are forgiven. While we wait for the wrath of God to fall upon the earth, What assures us that God will not swallow us up in that same wrath? Do we have any signs of his covenant with us? Anything that says he'll not go back on his word or forget it? That we'll not wait for him in vain and when he does come that we'll be spared? We have the bread and the cup. They point to deliverance from his wrath. They are promises That's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we are to look to these signs until he comes. We don't look at a scarlet thread in a window. We look at the scarlet wine in the cup to say, God will deliver us. And so look at the promise. Look carefully at verse 14 in our text. Rahab asked the Israelites in verse 12 to deal kindly with her. Notice the question in verse 12. She says, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house. And so look at verse 14. The men respond using the exact same term. We will deal kindly and truly with you. They promise to do this, but they promise to do it upon three conditions. Look carefully at the text. The three covenantal conditions. Condition number one. They say it in verse 14. 
And then they remind her in verse 20. They say, you can't betray us. Do not tell. You must be loyal to us and to our God. So notice very carefully these conditions because these two will find a parallel in the new covenant age. They say, you must be covenantally loyal. You can't betray us. Look at the second condition in verse 18. You must clearly distinguish yourself from all the other inhabitants of Jericho. And the method by which you're to do that is mentioned here. You must stand out. That red cord will be what causes you to stand out. There must be an antithesis between you and all other Jerichoites. And then look at the third condition in verse 18 and 19. You and your family have to remain in the place of safety. Look what they tell her in verse 19. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. So these three conditions, they're reasonable conditions. They're easy to comply with. They're necessary conditions, first for the spy's safety and then for Rahab's safety. The cord in the window is necessary. No other place is safe. That house alone, it's the only place when, when soldiers sweep in and buildings are being torn down and set on fire and people are being executed, there's going to be one tiny place of safety. Rahab's house. Here are the parallels to us in the new covenant. If we would escape the wrath of God. First of all, there must be covenant loyalty. We must not turn away from God and the people of God. This morning you saw Grace Anderson swearing an oath, taking vows of her loyalty to God and his church. And that's exactly what you, this is a parallel to what you see with Rahab. And then the second parallel we see is we too must maintain a clear distinction between ourselves and the world that will perish. We must be sharply different in lifestyle, speech, and worldview. We must recognize that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And then thirdly, we must be in the safe place if we're to escape the wrath of God. Where's that safe place? For Rahab and her family, it was where the scarlet cord was, inside the doors of her house. Just like Passover lamb's blood marked those houses and protected all those inside. But now the new covenant, the safe place is not a place. It is in a person. We must be in Christ. That's the safe place. There's no other name by which we must be saved. Carl, where's, where's the room where I can hide and hang a red string out? There is none. You can't find a bunker with concrete walls thick enough. The only safe place is to be in Christ. Now, I want you to look at this sign of the covenant. Look at verse 18 once again. Where the Israelite spies give Rahab the clear instructions for the sign. They say in verse 18, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window. That's the sign. Every time over the next several days, every time that Rahab would see the scarlet cord, it would remind her and strengthen her faith. And her family would ask, Rahab, what's that red cord for again? 
And she would answer, the red cord is the guarantee that our redemption is certified or safe. All the other inhabitants of Jericho will be slaughtered, but we (coughs) will be safe. (coughs) She didn't have to wait long, approximately two weeks. But she did have to wait on her deliverance. That sign right over there, the red cord in the window, that sign would encourage her. That's the function of covenant signs to encourage the believer. And that's exactly what the sacramental signs, the pledges of the new covenant are to do for us now. Even though we're being asked to wait a little longer than Rahab, we don't wait two weeks. We've waited 1,990 years now. Listen once again to our larger catechism. When it asks in question 162, what is a sacrament? The answer comes, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ and his church to signify, seal, and exhibit those who are within the covenant of grace, the benefits of his mediation, to strengthen and increase their faith and to distinguish them from those who are without. Did you hear what the larger catechism says our covenant signs are to do? To strengthen and increase our faith and to distinguish us from those who are without. What was the sign to do there at Rahab's house? It was to distinguish Rahab from all other residents of Jericho and to comfort her and strengthen her that the promise would be fulfilled. That's what happens every time we celebrate the sacrament. We're comforted, encouraged in our faith, and distinguished from the world. I'll talk to pastors and they'll say, Carl, what's happening at Woodruff Road? And I always respond, always in every case, we're preaching the word, we're administering the sacraments, and we're meeting for prayer. And I have some guys who say, yeah, 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 but what are you excited about? I am excited about preaching the word and administering the sacraments and meeting for prayer. And I've actually had PCA ministers say, Carl, this is just us. Your line's not tapped, is it right? Carl, this is just us. Don't you get tired of the ordinary means of grace? You can only preach so many times, have communion so many times before it gets tiresome. Carl, don't you think you need to spice it up a little? You know, drama, liturgical dance, you know what I'm talking about. Well, what if Rahab would have gotten tired of that sign after a few days? What if... Mom would have come through the house and said, Rahab, that sign, it's so tacky. A a scarlet cord? Let's replace it with a pink vase. Or maybe a painting. I saw one at the market yesterday, a painting of the Jordan Valley. Rahab would have said, you're nuts. That's the sign of my redemption. Don't touch the sign. It's the sign by which I heard of from the mouth of God's men. That sign would have been precious to her. So let me ask you, is our sign, the Lord's table, baptism, are they precious to you? Or do you get tired of them? These are God's heavenly appointed signs. They have great appeal to our senses. The table and the font speak to us. What they say to us is Christ has paid for our sins by his one sacrifice. And now we stand forgiven, cleansed, and right with the holy God. Do you get tired of hearing that message? Every time I eat and drink, I'm reminded, strengthened, and encouraged. Let me apply this word to us. 
I want you to notice what Rahab does with these covenant conditions because what I've, what I've refrained from mentioning so far is Rahab's action upon hearing the covenant conditions. Look carefully at verse 21. The covenant's been made. Rahab says, according to your words, so be it. In other words, she's signing on the bottom line. The men are sent away and they depart. And look at the last word of the chapter. She bound the scarlet cord in the window. Rahab immediately complied with the covenant conditions. She ties the cord in the window. She doesn't wait and say, you know, I've got really pressing matters to attend to. I've got plenty of time to comply. I'll hang that scarlet cord in the window tomorrow, maybe Thursday. No. Look at the last phrase. She immediately, instantly keeps the terms of the covenant. What is the parallel to you? Listen to our shorter catechism. What does God require of us in question 85? What does God require of us in the new covenant that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? Just like the Jerichoites. The answer comes back. To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life. My friend, if you're going to escape the wrath of God, you too must comply with the terms of the covenant. The terms are simple. Faith in Christ and repentance unto life. You must immediately, so to speak, tie the scarlet cord in your window tonight. Don't wait for one more sermon, one more Sunday. Cry out to God and say, Lord, I know your wrath is coming. I know my sins deserve your wrath. I know that the Lord Jesus Christ has satisfied your wrath in the place of sinners who believe in him. Lord, save me because I am trusting in him. And like Rahab, on the day of God's wrath, you too will be delivered. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you that you're a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. That you've ordained and designed the covenant of grace that we may be saved if we will respond to the offer of life with repentance and faith. Lord, you're the author of that faith, and you give faith by hearing. So we ask that you would stir in the hearts of those who have heard tonight, giving new life and a desire to comply with the conditions of the new covenant, repentance and faith. Do this for your sake and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.